All right, so um, we pick back up. Um, unfortunately, I don't have the book in front of me this time. Um, so what we gain in audio equipment, we have lost in terms of, well, something. Something's been lost. But anyway, um, all right, so we pick back up um, at this little flywheel, they call it. And we're going to break into the different types of going from good to great. Or what's needed, rather. So, what he calls level 5 leadership. We were surprised, shocked, really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, the good to great leaders seem to have come from Mars. Mm, okay. Self-effacing, quiet, reserved, even shy, these leaders are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. They are more like Lincoln and Socrates than Patton or Caesar. Alright, so there's very little concrete there to, to draw from, but uh, next one is, first two, then what? We expected that good to great leaders would begin by setting a new vision and strategy. We found instead that they first got the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and the right people in the right seats. Okay, this, this sounds very anti-integration, but, uh, and then they figured out where to drive it. The old adage, people are your most important asset, turns out to be wrong. People are not your most important asset. The right people are. Oh, so when they said people are your most important asset, no, that's wrong, because uh, that implies you can just take anyone. Or does it? Maybe he's misinterpreting that, and he's actually saying the exact same thing. Hmm. Something to think about. Um, next section, confront the brutal facts, in parentheses, yet never lose faith. Oh, good. I'm glad we got to the part discussing faith. We learned that a former prisoner of war had more to teach us about what it takes to find a path to greatness than most books and corporate strategy. Alright, I, I don't know what to say about that, but it's fucking stupid. Um, yeah, so you could learn more from someone who has personally gone through something really hard uh, than reading a book. Alright, congratulations. Every good to great company embraced what we came to call... The Stockdale Paradox. You must maintain unwavering faith that you can and will prevail in the end, regardless of the difficulties, and, at the same time, have the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Alright, I think that's the first, like, uh, insightful thing that I've come across. I think that is important, the idea that you have to have that unwavering belief that you'll get through it but also be willing you know you have to balance that with the idea of picking out what is wrong sometimes those things don't go hand in hand the hedgehog concept in parentheses simplicity within the three circles to go from good to great requires transcending the curse of competence just because something is your core business just because you've been doing it for years, perhaps even decades, does not necessarily mean you can be the best in the world at it. And if you cannot be the best in the world at your core business, then your core business absolutely cannot form the basis of a great company. 
It must be replaced with a simple concept that reflects deep understanding of three intersecting circles. All right, now let's go into the next thing. I'm assuming these are going to be the circles because he doesn't say anything. A culture of discipline. All companies have a culture. Some companies have discipline, but few companies have a culture of discipline. When you have disciplined people, you don't need hierarchy. When you have disciplined thought, you don't need bureaucracy. When you have disciplined action, you don't need excessive controls. When you combine a culture of discipline with an ethic of entrepreneurship, you get the magical alchemy of great performance. Technology Accelerators Good to great companies think differently about the role of technology. They never use technology as the primary means of igniting a transformation. Yet, paradoxically, they are pioneers in the application of carefully selected technologies. We learned that technology by itself is never a primary root cause of either greatness or decline. So that's almost interesting, but is the type of thing that's very much dependent on actual details. Um, so I guess it's something to look forward to. Maybe that'll be a chapter that's interesting in the future. Um, if so, I just realized we're basically just reading another index, like an expanded index. So that makes me feel like this is time well served. The flywheel and the doom loop. Those who launch revolutions, dramatic change programs, and wrenching restructures will almost certainly fail to make the leap from good to great. No matter how dramatic the end result, the good to great transformations never happened in one fell swoop. There was no single defining action, no grand program, no one killer innovation, no solid <sighs> Jesus Christ, no solitary lucky break, no miracle moment. No more examples? How am I supposed to know what you're talking about? Rather, the process resembled relentlessly pushing a giant heavy flywheel in one direction, turn upon turn, building momentum until a point of breakthrough and beyond. Well, what about the guy who invented the flywheel? From good to great to built to last. In an ironic twist, I now see good to great not as a sequel to built to last, but more of a prequel. Let me take this time to remind you, I have another book out there. This book is about how to turn a great organization into one that produces sustained great results. Built to Last, my other book, is about how you take a company with great results and turn it into an enduring great company of iconic stature. To make that final shift requires core values and a purpose beyond just making money, combined with the key dynamic of preserve the core and stimulate progress. So he's saying, in an ironic twist, he now sees this book about going from good to great as a prequel to his book about how to take a company and make it endure. Um, those things sound to me like they're existing simultaneously and putting one before the other is completely arbitrary uh certainly not ironic that you changed positions it sounds like more of a slight change in how you looked at it but anyway uh if you're already a student of built to last 
Please set aside your questions about the precise links between the two studies as you embark upon the findings in good to great. In the last chapter, I return to this question and link the two studies together. The Timeless Physics of Good to Great Physics in Quotations I had just finished presenting my research to a set of internet executives gathered at a conference when a hand shot up. <laughs> That's, I'm a big deal. I was presenting this to internet executives. That's the most, that doesn't mean anything. Internet executives. With internet capitalized. That's, <laughs> that's like a shortcut to impressing old people. Uh, internet executive, yeah, internet, huh? That's a buzzword. Uh, quote, will your findings continue to apply in the new economy? Don't we need to throw out the old ideas and start from scratch? It's a legitimate question, as we do live in a time of dramatic change, and it comes up so often that I'd like to dispense with it right up front, before heading into the meat of the book. That's right. In fact, the government has been planning the 9-11 attacks for some time. You haven't seen them yet, but it's going to really change things. Well, that and the manufactured collapse of our economy, which causes the poor people to not be able to afford their homes. Therefore, the banks can come in, repossess them, and then all that money they made the whole time on the loans is just free. Um, but that's for another time. Yes, the world is changing and will continue to do so. But what that does not but that does not mean we should stop the search for timeless principles. Think of it this way. While the practices of engineering continually evolve and change, the laws of physics remain relatively fixed. I'm a boring old white guy. I have money. I'm going to continue to have money. I'm going to talk about it as if it's doing as if it's because I did something interesting, but mostly it's because I'm capitalizing on your labor. I like to think of our work as a search for timeless principles, the enduring principles of great organizations that will remain true and relevant no matter how the world changes around us. Yes, the specific application will change, the engineering, but certain immutable laws of organized human performance, the physics, will endure. The truth is, there's nothing new about being in a new economy. Those who faced the invention of electricity, the telephone, the automobile, I hope there's more examples, the radio, the transistor, did they, those are real. That's, those are things he really said, by the way. Not the, I hope there's more examples, but the continued examples definitely was him. Did they feel it was any less of a new economy than we feel today? No, no, those were big deals at the time. Of course, yes, we get it. And in each rendition of the new economy, the best leaders have adhered to certain basic principles with rigor and discipline. Okay, so we're, <laughs> I think this is going to be a theme. I think by the end of each chapter, I'm going to uh, go a little more crazy. Some people will point out that the scale and pace of change is greater today than any time in the past. Perhaps. Even so, I'm just going to say I think this paragraph is going to be about how there are certain principles that still apply. Uh, even so, some of the companies in our good-to-great study faced rates of change that rival anything in the new economy. For example, during the early 80s, the banking industry was completely transformed in about three years as the full weight of deregulation came crashing down. It was certainly a new economy for the banking industry, yet Wells Fargo, with their spotless record, applied every single finding in this book to produce great results, right smack in the middle of the fast-paced change triggered by deregulation. 
Uh, subprime mortgages definitely helped as well. But um, the truth is, oh, wait, did I read that or is he? It's hard to tell whether I'm rereading something or whether he's just repeating himself. I got lost for a sec. Um, as you, uh, so this is like one of those asides, like the history books. As you immerse yourself in the coming chapters, keep one point in mind. This book is not about the old economy. No, no, no. This book will never seem outdated. It'll talk about timeless things like, like a middle class and the symbol of our economy, those beautiful twin towers. Eh, two 9-11 jokes is too much. I'm sorry. Uh, this book is not about the old economy, nor is it about the new economy. It is not even about the companies you're reading about or even about business per se. It is ultimately about one thing, the timeless principles of good to great. Oh, really? Is that where you got the title? I love that part in the book where it's like, oh, shit, that's where the title comes from. Uh, you know, when it's like, like you get some meaning from that. You're like, oh, fuck, it's from that quote. This is no different, by the way. That was a big deal. Um, it's about how you take a good organization and turn it into one that produces sustained great results using whatever definition of results best applies to your organization. This might come as a surprise. Nope. But I don't primarily think of my work as about the study of business. Nor do I see this as fundamentally a business book. You just said that. Whether I see my work as being about discovering what creates enduring great organizations of any type. I'm curious to understand the fundamental differences between great and good, between excellent and mediocre. <laughs> well, we are thoroughly exploring the mediocre. I just happen to use corporations as a means of getting inside the black box. I do this because publicly traded corporations, unlike other types of organizations, have two huge advantages for research. A widely agreed upon definition of results so we can rigorously select a study set and a plethora of easily accessible data. Okay, that's legitimate. Those are good points. That good is the enemy of great is not just a business problem. It is a human problem. So are you saying we can apply this beyond business? If we've cracked the code on the question of good to great, we should have something of value to any type of organization. Good schools might become great schools. Good newspapers might become great newspapers. Good churches might become great churches. What? Good government agencies might become great agencies, and good companies might become great companies. And good books might become great books if they stopped repeating themselves. Uh, that's not, well, we're kind of, anyway, uh, so I invite you to join me on an intellectual adventure to discover what it takes to turn good into great. I also encourage you to question and challenge what you learn. As one of my favorite professors once said, the best students are those who never quite believe their professors. True enough. But he also said, one ought not to reject the data merely because one does not like what the data implies. I offer everything herein for your thoughtful consideration, not blind acceptance. You're the judge and jury. Let the evidence speak. End of chapter one.